just for anyone listening, keep paying attention to issues of corporate abuse. Um, of all the forms that come in, pay attention to what are you consuming? What are you buying? Can you trace the supply chain? Was this labor certified fair trade? Where is this labor coming from? Who is being affected by the purchases we're making? Um, and I think just people overall need to be more cognizant of how much of our supply chain can be traced back to modern slavery and other forms of corporate abuse. Um, and I think that's the only way we're gonna see meaningful change on this issue is if just more people are kind of aware of what's happening. Hey, Changemaker, Julia Wicklander here. Welcome back to a new episode of the podcast and a very special one. This is a takeover by ActionAid International and their campaign called Her Story. Her Story is an anti-modern slavery campaign by ActionAid International to raise awareness of the prevalence of modern slavery, shed light on the impact it has on women and girls in particular, and amplify the voice of female survivors. The speaker you just heard was Lela Toladjian, a human rights activist and the founder of the International Coalition Against Modern Slavery. She has worked extensively with nonprofit organizations and elected officials on forced labor and trafficking. She is currently working as a youth activist and influencer on ActionAid's anti-modern slavery campaign, Her Story. In this podcast, you'll hear a conversation led by ActionAid International's Vanessa Power as she speaks with Lela Toladjian and Eugenia A. Ayagiva. Eugenia is the women's rights and campaign manager at ActionAid Ghana. They speak about the binding treaty on business and human rights what modern slavery looks like today, and about the importance of coalitions and activism, and more. This is ActionAid International's takeover of the Hey Changemaker podcast. So for those that are not familiar with the discourse, why do we need a binding treaty on business and human rights? Yeah, so this treaty would be a legally binding instrument to hold corporations accountable for human rights violations, and it would also be able to allow access to justice for survivors of forms of corporate abuse. And it's so, so important right now because we're seeing increasing rates of forced labor and other forms of corporate abuse. We're seeing more environmental destruction, more individuals who are losing their land to large corporations. And every part of our supply chain pretty much can be traced back to some form of human rights violation, some form of corporate abuse. And I think right now a really good example, forced displacement and forced labor in the Congo is rightfully getting a lot of attention, but also this is just one manifestation of an issue that's happening all around the world. And we have no real international binding instrument to regulate these corporations who are committing human rights abuses and our governments around the world are not doing enough on the state level to hold corporations accountable. So they're pretty much able to act with impunity. For instance, in Ghana, because of the IMF bailouts um, that we are currently going through, we are actually looking for money to show up our economy. And in doing that, that means for us, more concessions are going to be given to people, for, uh, companies to mine. And these companies, when they come, they're going to take large tracts of land. These large tracts of land have human beings living in them who, whose livelihood are dependent on 
these lands that are being taken away from them. So at the end of the day, people lose their livelihoods and end up in poverty. Yet there is nowhere for them to seek redress. Were they consulted? And who were those who were consulted to make sure that those lands are given away? Most of the time is very, very vague. So the LBI is one of the ways to curtail corporate power and ensure robust international legislations is in place in order to protect people's rights over economic interests. The legally binding treaty on business and human rights will ensure that companies act through due diligence to minimize the environmental and human rights impacts of their projects in territories that they occupy. Thank you so much, Eugenia, for um, giving us an understanding of what's happening um, within your locale. So how important is coalition building and collective power um, in achieving a just and feminist business and human rights legal instrument? It's absolutely essential to what we're trying to achieve. And the reason we're in this mess in the beginning is because the people who are affected by these issues were not given a seat at the table when these laws are being made. These laws that basically allow corporations to have free reign, and then the corporations who do sit in on these negotiations and who have political influence are acting with their profit margins in mind, not the interests of the communities who are being effective. Um, affected, sorry. And to achieve the collective goals that a lot of these human rights organizations have put out related to fighting for indigenous sovereignty, fighting modern slavery, fighting gender-based violence and gender-based exploitation, and then at the same time going up against large corporations in these negotiations to achieve these goals. And these corporations who will always have more power, more resources. The way we're going to even have a chance at making lasting change is by growing our collective power and engaging in international coalition building. So for um, Action Aid, our belief in social movements, our belief is in um, coalition building. We work with a lot of feminist um, organizations, and currently, as I speak, we are in a coalition to help pass a bill to criminalize um, activities of naming people rich, riches. So this is, these are some of the things we do, and the reasons why we we believe that coalitions are important is because, as I said, for example, the Feminist for Binding Treaty, it's a network of people, not just organizations, but individuals on the ground who share their lived experiences. It's not just people who come together. When you build coalitions, you have a diverse and rich source of information. You have, um, you build, you reach out for each other's strength to ensure that whatever you are fighting for, and for this, the Feminist for Binding Treaty, you really do it well, and it's sustainable. When we went to Geneva this year, we sort of had an African coalition. Beyond Geneva, what has happened? Beyond Geneva, we are still talking to see how we can ensure that each country, each region is doing something towards the 10th session to influence um, the treaty, in a feminist way to ensure that human rights are protected. Without the energy and strength of each member, our goal for a feminist binding treaty would actually be very challenging because one person cannot do it alone, one person cannot change people's minds. ActionAid brought a delegation of feminist activists to Geneva for the negotiations of the UN Binding Treaty. 
The delegation was a part of the Feminists for Binding Treaty Coalition. One of the coalition members was Sanyu Awori, Manager for Building Feminist Economies at the Association for Women's Rights in Development. This is Sanyu addressing the international community at the negotiations at the UN. The urgency of the ongoing events demand that I first condemn the ongoing genocide against the Palestinian people as part of a larger settler colonial project in which many transnational corporations are complicit. We continue to express our strong support for the binding treaty and are supportive of a process that allows for respectful engagement, negotiation, transparency, and the inclusion of all voices, especially when this is to address the primacy of human rights and advance a framework that truly addresses the violations by transnational corporations. We aim to ensure that diverse women and non-binary people's voices, rights, experiences, and visions are meaningfully included and prioritized throughout this process. Women bear the burden of multiple crises, including food insecurity and climate change. They are also at the heart of climate justice, including in their role as environmental defenders. Yet women's voices and leadership are often suppressed in decision-making processes. We are encouraged that the draft makes efforts to address gender equality, but we remain concerned that the new text weakens the obligation of corporations to respect human rights by presenting a pared-down definition of human rights due diligence and referring to corporate responsibilities rather than obligations, and that the draft makes state obligations subject to domestic law undermining the entire purpose of the treaty to strengthen the core obligations required when conducting business activities. We look forward to participating this session and emphasize that gender justice must be at the heart of negotiations. Thank you. We talk, um, you know, quite a lot about kind of gender responsive treaty um and so how are women and girls disproportionately impacted by corporate abuse so because of gender inequality women and girls are increasingly vulnerable to corporate abuse and if you look at modern slavery victims as a whole the vast majority are women um and then you know in ghana for example eight percent of women own land compared to 30 percent of men private sector employment is only 20 percent women and then these gender vulnerabilities lead to more women and girls being trapped in forms of forced labor. And then within situations of economic exploitation, like forced labor, we see then women and girls being more likely to face the compounded violence of sexual abuse. So it really makes women and girls more vulnerable and then gender inequality at the same time makes modern slavery and economic abuse overwhelmingly worse for women by having there be increased rates of sexual violence on top of the economic and physical violence. So, for instance, in Ghana, what that um, looks like is in terms of land grabbing. Now, I talk about land grabbing. I gave the example earlier on about um, a large tract of land being given out for um, as a concession to a mining company. The land have been taken, and most of the time, it's the women who farm close to the towns, close to the edges. The lands have been taken. Where are they going to get um, their livelihoods? How has this impacted on their livelihoods? Were they even consulted before the land was given? In the Upper East region, a whole community was resettled and the women's lived experience is so harrowing because 
their lands have been taken away, their source of livelihood has been taken away. They, I mean, at this point, they are living and they don't even know what to do as a livelihood because what they know has been taken away from them. And apart from the land grabbing, the li livelihood, the children's schools, their social life has been changed because the whole community has been moved from where they've known to another place. So this means that their cultural heritage is lost as well. And even the children's education is impacted and uh, is also impacted. This can cause malnutrition for them as well. So I believe these are the way sometimes um, the, what do you call it? It's uh, corporate abuses also um, affect women. Secondly, in terms of reproductive rights, what we realize is that there are reproductive and biological roles that um, corporations don't want to be responsible for. So for instance, this land has been taken. A whole big company is going to come up and take up and say he's mining. But then when the women go there asking for jobs, what kind of jobs they give them? They will tell them that, oh, you are a woman. You will say you will take care of your children. All your care work that you need to do, we can't take it, so we can't employ you. And most of the time what we see is some people even put clauses about when you can get pregnant and when you cannot get pregnant. Apart from that, women, as we say, are very disadvantaged in Ghana because most of these rural companies, uh, areas where these companies take their lands or where these um, corporate abuses take place, most of them are not highly educated. So the kind of jobs that they will get even with these companies that they tell them that, oh, when we come, you get jobs. At the end of the day, they can't get those jobs because they are not highly educated. They don't have the certificates to be able to be engaged in those jobs. So either they don't even have livelihoods or they are just um, picked as cleaners and as cooks. But how much are they being paid? So these are the levels of corporate abuses that we experience um, in Ghana in terms of that. Um, so with campaigns, like why her story is so so valuable is it brings in women who are survivors of corporate abuse of economic exploitation to tell their story and to be able to come to negotiations like these and have an impact in addressing the connection between gender-based violence and gender inequality and then forced labor and economic abuse and i feel like overall in the nonprofit sphere as a whole and in the business and human rights sphere we're really really seeing um, a lack in kind of addressing that connection in a concrete way um, and really bringing in the lived experiences of survivors to kind of guide these conversations. And I think that's why campaigns like Her Story and other campaigns that address the connection between gender-based violence and modern slavery are just so, so critical. Thank you. And we understand what this means in theory for those of us um, working in this space, but what does access to justice for survivors look like in reality? It can look like a lot of different things, but I think most importantly, it's being paid reparations for unpaid labor, it's receiving legal support, access to medical care, support services to then find fair employment and housing to reduce the risk of re-trafficking. And then with situations of exploitation that we're seeing right now, which take place 
most of the times in the global south to fuel corporations that are making lots of money that are located in the global north, we are not seeing this type of access to justice whatsoever. And there was a case actually in the US Supreme Court where men um, from West Africa who had been trafficked and forced to work farming cocoa as children and who were not paid for it, went up against uh, Nestle USA and a couple other companies who profited off of their unpaid labor. And the case was pretty much thrown out because it happened overseas. So for situations of economic exploitation that are happening overseas, there is really no concrete international framework for accessing justice, for accessing paid reparations, for accessing legal support and medical care support services. And that's how we see rates of free trafficking or individuals who were trafficked, they were able to get out of these situ situations of economic exploitation, of other forms of exploitation, but because they have no real framework for getting resources, for getting economic reparations, we see they're often trafficked back into situations of economic exploitation. And that's why these you know, access to justice, services for survivors, it's essential to breaking this cycle. So access to justice will mean something different to each survivor, each community, and therefore it's important to include affected communities and survivors of corporate abuse in every stage of the conversation and negotiating on the binding treaty. And for us, for in Ghana, it will also mean to respect the survivor's choice of redress. Some people would want to go through the normal court route. Some people want to go to alternative dispute resolution. Some people would even want to just solve it at home. In all this, we need to seek access to justice in Ghana would mean the survivor's interest first, and also ensuring that perpetrators are not left to roam around freely when they are um, caught or when the person, the survivor, is actually brave enough to come forward and then reports. I think lastly, access to justice in the Ghanaian context would also mean that there is psychosocial support for the victim, for the survivor after the action itself. Because in most cases, even when justice is, um, the person gets legal justice, the person's, the survivor's psychosocial or mental um, health is left with nothing being done. So I think as, um, justice for the survivor would also mean having in place facilities to support them as they try to rebuild their lives in a dignified manner. Yeah, so let's just go back um, a few steps. You talked about kind of having a seat at the table, right, for, for those um, from the communities that are affected by um, this injustice. So. Why must we ensure survivors and those affected have a seat at the table? I think first and foremost, because it is absolutely their right to be there. They are the ones being affected by these issues. They should have the right to be driving these pieces of legislation and how we deal with these issues, not corporations, the ones who are committing and enabling these crimes in the first place. And I think second of all, because survivors in affected communities are going to be acting with the best interest of people in mind and heads of states and the ones leading the negotiations are generally not acting with the same 
best interest in mind. They're just usually thinking about their own state interests. And I think also the framing of thinking about it as just having a seat at the table or just checking a box of having survivors and affected communities in the room, that's not enough. This should be a process that is guided and driven by survivors and affected communities because they're the ones being affected most by these issues. They should have the right to determine how corporations are being held accountable. How can we protect these communities going forward? So let's talk about climate. We talk about more kind of multiple crises around the world. So um, how is climate change due diligence intertwined with corporate accountability? And what must states consider as a reconvene next year? I think the biggest thing is just flat out corporations need to be held accountable for the environmental destruction they're committing right now that they've been committing for decades, corporations bear the majority of the burden for the climate crisis, but they face no real accountability for it. They are the driving force behind a lot of the land theft and land destruction in indigenous communities, a lot of the pollution of clean water sources, of rising temperatures, of rising carbon emissions, and there's no real accountability that's happening for these corporations who continue to make hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars to the detriment of communities around the world. And I think right now, as we move into the next round of negotiations, we really just need to look at how serious the climate crisis is right now and have this drive our sense of urgency and our sense of willing to come down hard with effective legislation of willing to address loopholes and all these sort of issues that kind of allow this exploitation to continue. In terms of youth activism, um, would you agree that there's a disparity between kind of youth activism in the climate justice space and the business and human rights space? Um, and in your opinion, you know, why, why do we have this issue and, and what can we do to encourage youth um, to be involved and kind of build that coalition space within the business and human rights space? I think there's absolutely a disparity and I think it's very troubling to see because the issue of climate change and the issue of modern slavery, of economic exploitation by corporations, these issues are so deeply connected, they reinforce one another and we will never have you know, a full and complete and just climate movement unless it includes how the climate crisis is deeply, deeply connected to forced labor and to other forms of economic abuse. We've seen um, families who lose their farmlands, lose their livelihoods because of climate change, then being forced into debt bondage and brick kilns. We've seen many of the corporations who profit off of forced labor are the same ones who are then driving the climate crisis. And we really won't have a comprehensive view of either issue until we look at them in connection with one another. And I think the reason we're seeing, you know, this huge youth movement for climate change, but at the same time, not a huge movement to address modern slavery is just because that there's not enough awareness of what modern slavery actually is, how this issue functions, different forms of it, how we contribute to it, how we benefit from it. And I think if we shift this awareness to kind of 
our conversations of climate, including conversations of modern slavery as well, we're going to see the same kind of pressure on governments and on corporations to address it as we're seeing with climate change. And so you um, you recently participated in the Geneva negotiations, you Binding treaty, and would you say that this space, um, you know, kind of allowed for survivors to, uh, to have a say and, and to, to be involved in the negotiations? I think it, I mean, it definitely allowed for it. There were survivors in affected communities who attended the negotiations. I think it did not give them enough power in this space. I think survivors in affected communities and just CSO delegations in general were a little bit sidelined during the negotiations. And overall, there was definitely some progress made and it was good to see so many actors engage with this process and many offering helpful recommendations. But I think a big issue with this process is just not moving fast enough. There are so many crises happening around the world that we can't afford to wait another 10 years, another 20 years for a functioning legal document. And I think this was also a big grievance that was addressed by many of the CSO delegates, by many of the affected communities, by many of the survivors who were there in these negotiations. It is just not happening fast enough. And then the people who have to go back home and see these issues unfolding on the ground, there was very much a sense of disconnect between the actual imminent crises that are happening all around the world relating to corporate abuse and then the very, very slow process that's happening at the UN level right now. Thank you so much. And finally, were you satisfied with the outcome of the recent negotiations in Geneva? Um, and what are your hopes for the 10th session next year? I would say that it's on two fronts. I was satisfied with the outcome in the sense that civil society, and if I should put states, were able to save the legal binding instrument from complete collapse. States and then um, CSOs were able to fight for it. So for that, I am very happy about that. Secondly, I was also happy that the chairman agreed for both text track changes and then the clean version was put on for states to make their inputs. Because for the clean version, a lot of issues that has to do with human rights, a lot of issues that we as families for binding treaty were standing for, we're also going to be removed. So I'm happy about that one as well. Um, I was not happy at the um, pace of work because for almost two days, we were able to really do after the preamble session. So that is not something that one would be happy about. Going into the next, the 10th session, I look forward to more intersectional meetings being held. I look forward to more African states taking part in the negotiations. And I look forward to the treaty becoming um, gender sensitive, taking into consideration women and girls' lived experiences and how these um this treaty is going to affect them when it goes back to the countries in their respective communities not for example how it affects people only in ghana accra capital city but how it will affect somebody in my village in sapelga which is about a 12 hour drive from accra in the remotest part of ghana how it will affect them because as i speak there are gold prospects there that are going on. 
So the legal binding treaty, how it would affect the smallest female embryo in the stomach of the mother to the oldest women sitting in the village. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eugenia. Latest reports reveal that an estimated 50 million people are trapped in situations of modern slavery, an increase of 10 million since 2017. The Her Story campaign features first-hand accounts of modern slavery by female survivors from across the world. You can read those stories and learn more about the anti-modern slavery campaign at girlsglobe.org herstory. As Leila, Eugenia, and Sanyu have said, modern slavery is something that is tied to so many industries around the world. And yet, only 36 countries have ratified the convention. There is a lot of work left to do to strengthen human rights and end modern slavery. So go to girlsglobe.org herstory to learn more. And secondly, share this episode with a friend or colleague to help raise awareness. Thank you for listening and learning from these amazing changemakers in today's episode. And a big thank you to ActionAid for leading this work and amplifying the voices of survivors of modern slavery through the Her Story campaign.